I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Second Chronicles, in chapter one. Sorry, let's go to chapter twenty-six, verse one. Like, are we doing the book again? Verse one, chapter twenty-six. All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father, Amaziah. He built a lot and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Now he went out and warred against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Javna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbael and against the Mayunites. The Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah, and his fame extended to the very border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, and at the valley gate, and at the corner buttress, and fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness, and hewed many cisterns, for he had much livestock, both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions according to the number of their muster, prepared by Jael the the scribe and Measa the official, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officers. The total number of the heads of the households of valiant warriors was 2,600, and under their direction was an elite army of 307,500, who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields and spears and helmets, body armor, bows and sling stones. In Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence, his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Father... We pray, Lord, your hand on this teaching this morning, your blessing, and we pray, Father, that we would hear your words. I ask and invite your Holy Spirit to speak in spite of weakness, to bring strength where there is none, and to allow us to understand more fully the relationship that we have with you. For those, Father, who are teetering on the edge of that relationship in doubt or turmoil or pain or hurt, Pray, Father, you would reach out and draw them closer in. For those who are not part of your family, who have not expressed belief, I pray this morning, whether it's this hour or the next, that your Spirit would be at work, drawing and bringing close. For even in this, Father, our weakness is obvious. Pray, Spirit, teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we finally have a bipartisan effort in the funeral of Ted Kennedy this last week. 
He died on Tuesday. Some called him the Lion of the Senate. But this past week, he quietly passed away at the age of 77 from brain cancer there in Hyannisport. When he agreed with the policies or the politics of Senator Kennedy or not, he certainly made his mark on the American political scene as a mainstay of the Democratic Party in the Senate for the past 47 years. I mention this, however, because his death reminds us of a stark reality. Every tombstone contains two dates and a dash. One date for the beginning, one date for the end, and a dash in between that represents our entire lives. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. It's a stark reality. Death is the reality in this world. Much as people want to ignore it, not face it, not deal with it, it is the greatest reality of our weakness that stands before us. That even the greatest among us, even the most accomplished, eventually must succumb to death. Now here's the good news in the face of that stark reality. The Hebrew writer doesn't stop there. He says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men once to die, and after this comes judgment... So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. Death is the stark reality. Life is the surprising revelation. And Jesus even says, and I love this, some will not taste death at all. I really want to be part of that group. Jesus said in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now that's not a contradiction in terms. He's talking about those who eagerly await him and who are alive when he calls his church home. And if you happen to be in that precious group of people, which we all hope to be, everyone who lives and believes in him will never die. Now you might say, I, I want to be one of them. How do I do it? How do I secure my place in life everlasting rather than stuck in the stark reality of death? How, how do I go about that? It's a question that all people ask whether they realize they're seeking Christ or not. How do I maintain? How do I go on? We read last week, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.9, Power is perfected in weakness, and when I am weak, then I am strong. And last week, indeed, we, we talked about the power, the power in weakness. And that godly power, even for salvation, is perfected in our weakness. The gospel is an unequivocal statement, my friends, of man's weakness and God's power to save. You know this, if you're a believer in Jesus, you know our eternal hope is profoundly tied to Jesus and the cross. For He said, apart from Me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. Chronicles 20, verse 12. You recall Jehoshaphat. Last week we studied, he cried out, We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. It is power in weakness. But this week I want to talk about the other side of the coin. That is, Weakness and power. Isaiah is a contrast to Jehoshaphat. He's the other side of the coin. 
Historian and moralist Lord Acton wrote those famous words back in 1887. He said, power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Well, Uzziah was truly a great king. He did great things. He's also called Azariah back in the book of 2 Kings. And his name means the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my strength. And so he started out very well. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Here's Uzziah, the tender age of 16. I have barely gotten my driver's license and he's handed the keys to the kingdom. I mean, this king was a young man when he started out. Following the murder of his father, Uzziah takes the throne. He believes in God. He listens to his prophets. Specifically one, this Zechariah who's mentioned here. Not the same Zechariah who wrote the book of Zechariah, but a prophet who was alive there at the time of Uzziah. And another famous prophet who arose in the days of Uzziah. You might remember his name. It's Isaiah. The great prophet of Messianic prophecies. We talked so much about Jesus 700 years before Jesus came. So there were some great prophets around in the days of Uzziah. And in several areas, as long as Uzziah was seeking the Lord, the Lord empowered Uzziah to greatness. He was great. You might want to jot a few things down. He was empowered for geographical advancement. Uzziah was empowered for geographical advancement. Verse 6 tells us he went out and warred against the Pharisees, uh, Philistines, broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and, and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines. And God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbael and against the Mayunites. Mayunites. And, and the Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah and his fame extended to the border of Egypt. He became very strong, down in verse 11. Moreover, he had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions according to the number of their muster. And it tells the number of these, uh, these men in the army and how they spread out. In fact, his kingdom extended far beyond all others. He had great geographical advancement. He was empowered by the Lord for this. He built garrisons and cities in, in the area of the Philistines. He extended Israel all the way down to Elot, a lot which exists today, down the southern tip of, of Israel, right up against the Red Sea. He did all of this geographical advancing, and he built things. Secondly, Uzziah was empowered for municipal architecture. Municipal architecture. Back in verse 2 of chapter 26, we're told he built a lot, restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Down in verse 9, he built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and the valley gate and at the corner buttress and fortified them. He was a wise builder and architect, this Uzziah. In fact, he realized the two most vulnerable places in Jerusalem were there at the corner gate and the valley gate and the corner buttress. So he fortified them to strengthen them because those were the places most easily hit by advancing enemies. So geographical advancement, municipal architecture. Thirdly, he was empowered for fruitful agriculture. Find verse 10 interesting. He built towers in the wilderness and hewed many cisterns which would hold the water as it rained down. For he had much livestock, both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. 
This was a king with a green thumb, a king who liked to get his hands dirty, who liked to roll up his sleeves and, and get into the soil of Israel. And he was empowered for fruitful agriculture, which seems to be something in the blood of the Jewish people. Agricultural greatness. Israel leads the world in agriculture in terms of advancements in technology. It's an amazing thing to go and see with your own eyes. He also was empowered for unconventional armaments. Verse 15. In Jerusalem he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. I find this interesting. State-of-the-art catapults of some kind here and firing mechanisms that could launch things from the towers there in Jerusalem. It would be centuries before Rome developed similar things. Catapults and war machines. I was thinking a little bit about Israel in the War of Independence, and they developed a thing called Little Davids, or Davidkas. If you ever heard about these Davidkas, they were interesting, uh, unconventional flying mortars that were notoriously inaccurate. You fire these things off, it was anyone's best guess as to where they were going to land. But they had a singular distinction about them. They were loud. They made a horrifying noise as they flew through the air. At the same time, the Arabs in 1948 were aware of America and the atom bomb. (laughs) And so they thought that these little Davids were atomic weapons. So they would hear in these Arab towns these weapons flying through the air making this horrifying sound and as they would land and explode wherever they did, they, they took entire towns because the Arabs would just flee from these little Davids. Well, geographical advancement, municipal architecture, fruitful agriculture, unconventional armaments. All of these things tell us one thing about Uzziah. He was a a Renaissance man. (laughs) He had his hands in everything. He had that so-called Midas touch. One of these guys that none of us liked because he could do everything and do it well. Everything he tended to touch turned to gold. But my friends, for all of that, don't forget the source of his empowerment. Verse 5 tells us, As long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Isaiah began by seeking the Lord in all he did, and he was successful. The Lord blessed him, and the Lord loves to bless and empower those who seek Him. He never calls anyone to a task without providing the power to accomplish that task. And in fact, the same empowerments of Isaiah are available to you. And to me, if we trust in the Lord today, geographical advancement is ours if we are trusting in the Lord. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Armed with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are called to advance the territory of the Lord. We are called to geographical advancement. Put in the most personal terms I can, this little barn is not enough. This little barn is not our calling. This ten acre piece of land doesn't even belong to this fellowship. Troxel Road and the property there is not enough. We are called to geographical advancement. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus is speaking to the church of Philadelphia. And by extension, speaking to a a, a part of the church at least, alive in the last days. 
The missionary church, the church that has a world mindset. And he says, behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Geographical advancement, simply put, is the call of the missionary. Oh, that's nice. I always like when someone decides to be a missionary and go into the field. I always enjoy writing checks and sending them off to support those people. They're a little weird. They wear those shirts that don't look like the rest of us when they come home. And they always have those slideshows that are a little sleepy. But I really appreciate all that the missionaries are doing. What's happened to the missionary call of the church? What's happened to us, gang? That we're so comfortable here and that we're no longer going. I've shared before, South Korea is on the verge of surpassing America. South, tiny little South Korea versus great big America. They're on the verge of surpassing us within the next couple or three years in missionary sending. More people flooding out of South Korea. Some are coming here. What has happened to the missionary call of the church? Someone might say, well, I don't have that, that power. I only have a little power. Perfect! Then you are who he's looking for to go. And I I guarantee He's called some of you to go and you're just not sure you want to. It's not that you're not sure about the call. You've heard it. And you're saying, yeah, but that's not me. I'll help out Compassion International on Compassion Sundays once a year. I can do that. Are you being called to the geographical advancement of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? God will provide the power. All you need to provide are the feet. We are also blessed with municipal architecture. Gang, we can build towers in the wilderness that signal salvation. We can build fortifications in the fellowship that will protect against the enemy and cities of restoration even as we advance the gospel, even as we ourselves are being built together in the Lord. By His power, Ephesians 2.20 tells us, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And Jude says in his letter, verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. We are called to be builders in this kingdom. And fruitful agriculture, well, there's an obvious one. We have the power for that. My Father, Jesus said, is glorified by this, John 15, 8, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. What is that fruit? We've talked about it before. What is the fruit? It's not the fruit of the Spirit Jesus is talking about there. For us to bear fruit that glorifies God, we're talking about people. We're talking about lives. Individuals, people you know at work right now who are not saved. This morning who are sleeping in or watching TV and have no hope of heaven. But you... We're talking about people in our families that we need to tell about Jesus. Friends that we enjoy being with but don't know anything about our Lord and Savior. Fruitful agriculture. And who is is glorified in the bearing of much fruit? God is. God is. My friends, we also have the most unconventional armaments. 
Like Uzziah, we have been empowered with things that are unconventional, unusual. We have the full armor of God. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6. We can put on the belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and prayer. These are our equipment, our our defense, and our offense for bringing the gospel into the world. And with these, we don't have little Davids, little Davidkas. No, we serve the son of David, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, doesn't miss his targets but lands spot on. We can be as empowered as Uzziah. And we read this story of him, we see the way God empowered him to greatness as a king. We're told over there in verse 8 that his fame extended to the very border of Egypt, for he became very strong. You can be strong in the Lord. Like Uzziah, you can have great strength and power to do amazing things in the kingdom. And it can start, yes, in a tiny little barn. It can start in a single heart and grow into greatness in the Lord. And that's the problem. That's the problem. Precious people, please be warned. Spiritual empowerment, even spiritual empowerment, can cause a person to go very wrong. We know as long as Isaiah sought the Lord... God prospered him, but something began to shift that took that greatness of Isaiah and would leave it in a horrifying place. What happened that shifted Isaiah's God-seeking into self-seeking? Look at verse 8 again. His fame extended to the very border of Egypt, for, for he became very strong. The word there in the Hebrew fame is an interesting word. It's Shem. Shem. Not Shem. That's a different guy from Three Stooges fame. Shem. Jews today will say Hashem when they're talking about the Lord, not wanting to specifically say the name of Yahweh or, or to speak the name of God because Shem means name. When you read it, what the Bible's telling us is not just His fame, it's His name extended to the border of Egypt. His name. He made a name for Himself. His name extended internationally. And in verse 16, then we're told, when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. Because absolute power corrupts absolutely. The power that marked Uzziah great in the beginning eventually mars Uzziah, again, in in a terrible way. We're not talking about power in our weakness. We're talking about the weakness in power. He was unfaithful, verse 16, to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Well then Azariah, the priest, entered after him. And with him, eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men, they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary. For you have been unfaithful, and you will have no honor from the Lord God. We have an intervention going on here. Isaiah becomes powerful and great and begins to think he is more than he is. He forgets where the power comes from. So he enters the temple because I'm Isaiah. I'm the great king. And I'm going to go pray for my people now. And into the sanctuary he goes. Into the holy place. 
taking a censer, he gets ready to offer incense on the altar. And these 81 priests intervene. Brave priests. They stand up. 81 voices of grace. Now please hear me. This is not judgment. It's grace. And sometimes we misunderstand the two. These 81 priests enter in there. The chief priest Azariah stands up and says, Don't do this! Stop! They try to stop his sin direction, his sin progression. That's grace. Now the world would have you say, when you try to intervene in someone's life and stop them from sinning, that's judgment. No, it's not. It's grace. It's grace. The Lord does this, doesn't He? When we're about to make sin choices, He sends the voice of grace, and it may be through a friend who says, what are you doing? It could be through a pastor who doesn't even know what's going on in your life, who preaches something, and you walk out of it going, wow, I've got to change that. It's the voice of grace. It could be from a, through a family member who says, you've got to stop what you're doing. You're killing yourself. That is not judgment. It's grace. It's love. It's concern. It's care that says, you've got to stop. And these 81 voices of grace speak up. And the question is, who listens? Will Uzziah listen? Gang, warning always precedes sin. sin. It always precedes sin. Understand that. When we're about to sin, children of God, when you're about to do wrong, God sends a voice of grace. He speaks against it one way or the other. Are we going to hear Him or not? Hebrews 12.25 says, See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. There is a voice. And it may even be in your conscience that the Holy Spirit speaks. Stop! Don't take the next step. It's sin. Isaiah was warned, but his response is self-defensive rage. Verse 19. But Isaiah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Verse 20. Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold he was leprous on his forehead. They hurried him out of there and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord, the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and he lived in a separate house being a leper for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Power twisted this one-time man of faith. Power altered him. Messed him up. In at least three ways that we can see here. Isaiah's ears were clogged. He, he couldn't hear what the priests were saying, what they were doing. He just got self-defensive and angry. And you know that. Sometimes if you're trying to call a brother or sister out and say, look, don't, don't go there. What business is that of yours? Leave me alone. You have nothing to do with me. It's because conscience is saying they're right. We shouldn't be going here. When confronted with clear warning, Uzziah responds with rage, and that's all it takes. Leprosy hits. What a graphic illustration of corruption. His heart went corrupt first. His flesh very quickly followed. It's an explicit, even gross picture before us. 
that follows when a man of great power goes corrupt. Uzziah's ears were clogged with the stuff of of self-indulgent pride. And to make matters worse, his prayers were corrupted. Ears clogged, prayers corrupted. Why does he go into the holy place to the temple to pray? Rather than just asking the priest to do it. Rather than calling Azariah and saying, hey, would you and the priest go and and offer incense and pray for for me and for the people? That would have been the humble approach, but no. I'm going to do it myself. Why? Because this prayer service was all about Uzziah. This prayer was all directed at him. Uzziah is praying to attract attention to himself. Like the Pharisee who stood in Luke 18.11 was praying this to himself, Jesus said, God, I thank you. I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. That's the kind of prayer Isaiah was getting ready to offer. A prayer that was all about him, that made him look all the better. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus said, When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Why does Jesus point this out? Because prayer is about drawing near to God, not drawing attention to yourself. It's about bringing our hearts to the Father, not making sure everybody knows that you know how to pray. We talk often about this, gang. I would that everyone would pray more often, that we would have more opportunity. Next Sunday evening at 5 o'clock, our first, first fruits offering of September where we're going to gather and we're going to worship and pray and I invite you to pray but don't come praying thinking that either I'm not going to pray because I don't have the right religious words or I'm going to pray and I'm going to work on it all week long because it's not about you or me when we pray it is all about the Lord and what He's doing and who He is Uzziah gang this is serious He is dethroning God here and at the same time enthroning himself. And Satan tried the same trick. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You've been cut down to earth. You who have weakened the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Ezekiel talks about this as well. Ezekiel 28.17 Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Pride, especially where prayer is concerned, is nothing less than the enthronement of the self and the attempt to dethrone the Lord God. Isaiah's ears are clogged and his prayers are corrupted. But even more tragically, Isaiah's people become corroded. His people become corroded. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. This may be a little bit of a stretch, so I'll tell you that ahead of time, but it's interesting that it is not until the year King Isaiah died that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Why in the year Isaiah died? Is it possible Isaiah was having trouble seeing the Lord because Isaiah was in the way? Because Isaiah's greatness was at the front of all Israel? Because the people were looking at the man instead of the one who gave the power in the first place? Well, some think so. 
But gang, it gets worse. There's more corrosion among the people that follows. Look at chapter 27. It tells us Jotham was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yerusha, the daughter of Zadok. Now, Jotham is how you pronounce his name. Jotham is actually Uzziah's son. And it says, verse 2, He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. Yeah, neither would I. Did you see what happened to Dad? I'm not going there. I'm not going to take that risk. I'm not going to have that chance. Man, I'd be freaked out to go anywhere near that place. If it was my dad who broke out in leprosy. That's sad. Now, Jotham's a good king. He does good things. But you can make a case that he stops going to temple. He stops going to church. And it gets worse. We're told that the people, verse 2, the second part of it there, continued acting corruptly. Because the corruption is now spread. And we're still, go down to chapter 28, verse 1. Ahaz, this is Jotham's son, was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. Do you see what's happening here? In less than a generation, the corruption of Isaiah spreads down through a son who possibly wouldn't go to the temple, definitely spreads among the people, and by the time his grandson takes the throne, it is idol worship everywhere. Absolute massive corruption. And we're told... We're told, gang, something else in chapter 28, verse 24. Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces, and he closed the doors of the house of the Lord and made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. The temple is closed. Not just for the king. It's not Isaiah who tried to offer up incense in the temple. It's not Jotham who, who refused to go into the temple. It's, not, it's now Ahaz who says, we're not going to even need the temple anymore. Shut the doors. We're not going in. We're going to follow these other idols instead. This is what happens when we pursue power for the sake of power. This is the weakness of power. Ears become clogged and prayers corrupted and hearts are corroded and finally doors are closed. Even the open door that the Lord said, Behold, I set before you an open door. Revelation 3.8 That no one can shut. Opportunity to take the Gospel. But when we are so excited about our spiritual power and what we're able to accomplish for the Lord, the door starts to creak as we would actually close it. And I thought we were filled with the Holy Spirit and power. And I thought we were supposed to pursue that thing. Listen, Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus and to all generations forever and ever. And that's the issue. That's the key. To Him be the glory in the church. 
and in Christ Jesus. Yes, the power of God is at work with us. Yes, we can receive the empowerment of His Holy Spirit to function and do great things in the kingdom. Great things have been done. Great things will be accomplished for the Lord. But unless we want to end up like an Uzziah or worse than Ahaz, we must continue to acknowledge our innate powerlessness. And we are vessels for the power of God. We are not suddenly the power of God in and of ourselves. And that distinction is huge. We must continue to acknowledge how weak we truly are and our God-given need for Christ Jesus. To be a Christ-centered church full of Christ-centered people, so intent on the Lord Jesus that the only thing that spreads out of this place is His name and His fame and none of our own. I think one of the single greatest things a spiritual man of God or man of woman can hope for is not to be recognized at all in this life. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18 tells us that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. But our sinful nature is, is such that even the goal of Christ-centeredness can become a source of spiritual pride. <laughs> I mean, that's, how, that's how sinful we really are. Even the goal of spirituality and, and, a, and, a, and a stronger faith Our sin nature can twist that and corrupt it. Do do we realize, gang, that, that for all of our faith, without the Lord Jesus Christ, we have no basis on which even to approach God? We can't even come before Him if not for what Jesus did. Who lives in that cottage over there? Well, the king does. The king lives in a cottage? Yeah. He has leprosy. The king has leprosy? That's the corruption of power. I hope it scares you. I really do. I hope it puts the fear of God in us. We have to remember that as long as we are in the flesh, we are corruptible. And it is only by the grace and the mercy of God the blood of Jesus Christ spilled on the cross, that we will ever do anything of greatness for the Lord and His kingdom. Amen? Paul understood that, and I must agree with him, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here's a verse worth memorizing and taking home. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. And so, Jesus, we seek to do so. We find ourselves, Lord, on that that line of divine tension between desiring to do great things for You, to see the kingdom expand. And, and even in and of ourselves, we pray for an increase of faith and growth in our spiritual understanding. Lord, in, in our comprehension of the Word and our discernment by Your Spirit and even the gifts that You would provide, we are even told in Your Word to seek those. 
But on the other hand, Father, we are so fallible to be corrupted by our sin nature and our enjoyment of what we begin to accomplish. Father, I don't know anyone who's up for this kind of thing. And so we again come back to You weak and powerless. Crying out for Your power to be manifested in this place and in our hearts. But more so, Father, that even as Your power is seen and known, that we will never step into the place of trying to take Your glory. May we stay, Father, in the congregation, the mass of people who love You and glorify You and honor You and and not stand out. And not be seen as special or better than. May we just be children in Your family. All together adoring Jesus Christ. And it's to Him we pray this morning. Amen.